Section 5 of The Coming Race This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. The Coming Race by Edward George Bulwer-Lytton. Chapter 9 It was not for some time, and until, by repeated trances, if they are to be so called, my mind became better prepared to interchange ideas with my entertainers, and more fully to comprehend differences of manners and customs, at first too strange to my experience to be seized by my reason, that I was enabled to gather the following details respecting the origin and history of the subterranean population as portion of one great family race called the Anna. According to the earliest traditions, the remote progenitors of the race had once tenanted a world above the surface of that in which their descendants dwelt. Myths of that world were still preserved in their archives, and in those myths were legends of a vaulted dome in which the lamps were lighted by no human hand. But such legends were considered by most commentators as allegorical fables. According to these traditions, the earth itself, at the date to which the traditions ascend, was not indeed in its infancy, but in the throes and travail of transition from one form of development to another, and subject to many violent revolutions of nature. By one of such revolutions, that portion of the upper world inhabited by the ancestors of this race had been subjected to inundations, not rapid but gradual and uncontrollable, in which all, save a scanty remnant, were submerged and perished. Whether this be a record of our historical and sacred deluge, or of some earlier one contended for by geologists, I do not pretend to conjecture, though, according to the chronology of this people, as compared with that of Newton, it must have been many thousands of years before the time of Noah. On the other hand, the account of these writers does not harmonize with the opinions most in vogue among geological authorities, inasmuch as it places the existence of a human race upon earth at dates long anterior to that assigned to the terrestrial formation adapted to the introduction of mammalia. A band of the ill-fated race, thus invaded by the flood, had, during the march of the waters, taken refuge in caverns amidst the loftier rocks, and wandering through these hollows, they lost sight of the upper world forever. Indeed, the whole face of the earth had been changed by this great revulsion. Land had been turned into sea, sea into land. In the bowels of the inner earth, even now, I was informed as a positive fact, might be discovered the remains of human habitation, habitation not in huts and caverns, but in vast cities, whose ruins attest the civilization of races which flourished before the age of Noah, 
and are not to be classified with those genera to which philosophy ascribes the use of flint and the ignorance of iron the fugitives had carried with them the knowledge of the arts they had practised above ground arts of culture and civilization. their earliest want must have been that of supplying below the earth the light they had lost above it and at no time even in the traditional period do the races of which the one i now sojourned with formed a tribe seem to have been unacquainted with the art of extracting light from gases or manganese or petroleum they had been accustomed in their former state to contend with the rude forces of nature and indeed the lengthened battle they had fought with their conqueror ocean which had taken centuries in its spread had quickened their skill in curbing waters into dikes and channels to this skill they owed their preservation in their new abode for many generations said my host with a sort of contempt and horror these primitive forefathers are said to have degraded their rank and shortened their lives by eating the flesh of animals many varieties of which had like themselves escaped the deluge and sought shelter in the hollows of the earth other animals supposed to be unknown to the upper world those hollows themselves produced when what we should term the historical age emerged from the twilight of tradition the ana were already established in different communities and had attained to a degree of civilization very analogous to that which the more advanced nations above the earth now enjoy they were familiar with most of our mechanical inventions including the application of steam as well as gas the communities were in fierce competition with each other they had their rich and their poor they had orators and conquerors they made war either for a domain or an idea though the various states acknowledged various forms of government free institutions were beginning to preponderate popular assemblies increased in power republics soon became general the democracy to which the most enlightened european politicians look forward as the extreme goal of political advancement and which still prevailed among other subterranean races whom they despised as barbarians the loftier family of anna to which belonged the tribe i was visiting looked back to as one of the crude and ignorant experiments which belonged to the infancy of political science it was the age of envy and hate of fierce passions of constant social changes more or less violent of strife between classes of war between state and state this phase of society lasted however for some ages and was finally brought to a close at least among the nobler and more intellectual populations by the gradual discovery of the latent powers stored in the all-permeating fluid which they denominate vril 
according to the account i received from z who as an erudite professor of the college of sages had studied such matters more diligently than any other member of my host's family this fluid is capable of being raised and disciplined into the mightiest agency over all forms of matter animate or inanimate it can destroy like the flash of lightning yet differently applied it can replenish or invigorate life heal and preserve and on it they chiefly rely for the cure of disease or rather for enabling the physical organization to re-establish the due equilibrium of its natural powers and thereby to cure itself by this agency they rend way through the most solid substances and open valleys of culture through the rocks of their subterranean wilderness from it they extract the light which supplies their lamps finding it steadier softer and healthier than the other inflammable materials they had formerly used but the effects of the alleged discovery of the means to direct the more terrible force of vril were chiefly remarkable in their influence upon social polity as these effects became familiarly known and skilfully administered war between the vril discoverers ceased for they brought the art of destruction to such perfection as to annul all superiority in numbers discipline or military skill the fire lodged in the hollow of a rod directed by the hand of a child could shatter the strongest fortress or cleave its burning way from the van to the rear of an embattled host if army met army and both had command of this agency it could be but to the annihilation of each the age of war was therefore gone but with the cessation of war other effects bearing upon the social state soon became apparent man was so completely at the mercy of man each whom he encountered being able if so willing to slay him on the instant that all notions of government by force gradually vanished from political systems and forms of law it is only by force that vast communities dispersed through great distances of space can be kept together but now there was no longer either the necessity of self-preservation or the pride of aggrandizement to make one state desire the preponderate in population over another the real discoverers thus in the course of a few generations peacefully split into communities of moderate size the tribe amongst which i had fallen was limited to twelve thousand families each tribe occupied a territory sufficient for all its wants and at stated periods the surplus population departed to seek a realm of its own there appeared no necessity for any arbitrary selection of these emigrants there was always a sufficient number who volunteered to depart these subdivided states petty if we regard either territory or population all appertained to one vast general family they spoke the same language 
though the dialects might slightly differ. They intermarried, they maintained the same general laws and customs, and so important a bond between these several communities was the knowledge of vril and the practice of its agencies that the word avril was synonymous with civilization, and vrilya, signifying the civilized nations, was the common name by which the communities employing the uses of vril distinguished themselves from such of the Anna as were yet in a state of barbarism. The government of the tribe of Vrilya I am treating of was apparently very complicated, really very simple. It was based upon a principle recognized in theory, though little carried out in practice above ground, namely, that the object of all systems of philosophical thought tends to the attainment of unity, or the ascent through all intervening labyrinths to the simplicity of a single first cause or principle. Thus, in politics, even Republican writers have agreed that a benevolent autocracy would ensure the best administration if there were any guarantees for its continuance or against its gradual abuse of the powers accorded to it. This singular community elected, therefore, a single supreme magistrate styled Tur. He held his office nominally for life, but he could seldom be induced to retain it after the first approach of old age. There was, indeed, in this society nothing to induce any of its members to covet the cares of office. No honors, no insignia of higher rank were assigned to it. The supreme magistrate was not distinguished from the rest by superior habitation or revenue. On the other hand, the duties awarded to him were marvelously light and easy, requiring no preponderant degree of energy or intelligence. There being no apprehensions of war, there were no armies to maintain. There being no government of force, there was no police to appoint and direct. What we call crime was utterly unknown to the Vrilya, and there were no courts of criminal justice. The rare instances of civil disputes were referred for arbitration to friends chosen by either party, or decided by the Council of Sages, which will be described later. There were no professional lawyers, and, indeed, their laws were but amicable conventions, for there was no power to enforce laws against an offender who carried in his staff the power to destroy his judges. There were customs and regulations, to compliance with which, for several ages, the people had tacitly habituated themselves, or, if in any instance an individual felt such compliance hard, he quitted the community and went elsewhere. There was, in fact, quietly established amid this state much the same compact that is found in our private families, in which we virtually say to any independent grown-up member of the family whom we receive to entertain, stay or go, according as our habits and regulations suit or displease you. But though there were no laws, such as we call laws, 
no race above ground is so law-observing. Obedience to the rule adopted by the community has become as much an instinct as if it were implanted by nature. Even in every household, the head of it makes a regulation for its guidance, which is never resisted, nor even cavilled at by those who belong to the family. They have a proverb, the pithiness of which is much lost in this paraphrase, No happiness without order, no order without authority, no authority without unity. The mildness of all government among them, civil or domestic, may be signalized by their idiomatic expressions for such terms as illegal or forbidden, namely, it is requested not to do so-and-so. Poverty among the Anna is as unknown as crime. Not that property is held in common, or that all are equals in the extent of their possessions, or the size and luxury of their habitations, but there being no difference of rank or position between the grades of wealth or the choice of occupations, each pursues his own inclinations without creating envy or vying. Some like a modest, some a more splendid kind of life. Each makes himself happy in his own way. Owing to the absence of competition and the limit placed on the population, it is difficult for a family to fall into distress. There are no hazardous speculations, no emulators striving for superior wealth and rank. No doubt in each settlement all originally had the same proportions of land dealt out to them, but some, more adventurous than others, had extended their possessions farther into the bordering wilds, or had improved into richer fertility the produce of their fields, or entered into commerce or trade. Thus, necessarily, some had grown richer than others, but none had become absolutely poor, or wanting anything which their tastes desired. If they did so, it was always in their power to migrate, or, at the worst, to apply, without shame and with certainty of aid, to the rich. For all the members of the community considered themselves as brothers of one affectionate and united family, more upon this head will be treated of, incidentally, as my narrative proceeds. The chief care of the supreme magistrate was to communicate with certain active departments charged with the administration of special details. The most important and essential of such details was that connected with the due provision of light. Of this department, my host, Apalin, was the chief. Another department, which might be called the foreign, communicated with the neighboring kindred states, principally for the purpose of ascertaining all new inventions, and to a third department, all such inventions and improvements in machinery were committed for trial. Connected with this department was the College of Sages, a college especially favored by such of the Anna as were widowed and childless, and by the young unmarried females, amongst whom Z was the most active, and, if what we call renown or distinction was a thing acknowledged by this people, 
which I shall later show it is not, among the more renowned or distinguished. It is by the female professors of this college that those studies which are deemed of least use in practical life, as purely speculative philosophy, the history of remote periods, and such sciences as entomology, conchology, etc., are the more diligently cultivated. Z, whose mind, active as Aristotle's, equally embraced the largest domains and the minutest details of thought, had written two volumes on the parasite insect that dwells amid the hairs of a tiger's paw, which work was considered the best authority on that interesting subject. Note. The animal here referred to has many points of difference from the tiger of the upper world. It is larger, and with a broader paw, and still more receding frontal. It haunts the side of lakes and pools, and feeds principally on fishes, though it does not object to any terrestrial animal of inferior strength that comes in its way. It is becoming very scarce, even in the wild districts, where it is devoured by gigantic reptiles. I apprehended that it clearly belongs to the tiger species, since the parasite animalcule found in its paw, like that in the Asiatic tiger, is a miniature image of itself. End note. But the researches of the sages are not confined to such subtle or elegant studies. They comprise various others more important, and especially the properties of Rill, to the perception of which their finer nervous organization renders the female professors eminently keen. It is out of this college that the Tour, or chief magistrate, selects counsellors, limited to three, in the rare instances in which novelty of event or circumstance perplexes his own judgment. There are a few other departments of minor consequence, but all are carried on so noiselessly and quietly that the evidence of a government seems to vanish altogether, and social order to be as regular and unobtrusive as if it were a law of nature. Machinery is employed to an inconceivable extent in all the operations of labor, within and without doors, and it is the unceasing object of the department charged with its administration to extend its efficiency. There is no class of laborers or servants, but all who are required to assist or control the machinery are found in the children, from the time they leave the care of their mothers to the marriageable age, which they place at sixteen for the jaye, the females, twenty for the anna, the males. These children are formed into bands and sections under their own chiefs, each followed by the pursuits in which he is most pleased, or for which he feels himself most fitted. Some take to handicrafts, some to agriculture, some to household work, and some to the only services of danger to which the population is exposed. For the sole perils that threaten this tribe are, first, from those occasional convulsions within the earth, to foresee and guard against which tasks their utmost ingenuity, 
eruptions of fire and water, the storms of subterranean winds and escaping gases. At the borders of the domain, and at all places where such peril might be apprehended, vigilant inspectors are stationed with telegraphic communications to the hall, in which chosen sages take it by turns to hold perpetual sittings. These inspectors are always selected from the elder boys approaching the age of puberty, and on the principle that at that age observation is more acute and the physical forces more alert than at any other. The second service of danger, less grave, is in the destruction of all creatures hostile to the life or the culture or even the comfort of the Anna. Of these, the most formidable are the vast reptiles, of some of which antediluvian relics are preserved in our museums, and certain gigantic winged creatures, half-bird, half-reptile. These, together with lesser wild animals, corresponding to our tigers or venomous serpents, it is left to the younger children to hunt and destroy, because, according to the Anna, here ruthless is wanted and the younger the child the more ruthlessly he will destroy there is another class of animals in the destruction of which discrimination is to be used and against which children of intermediate age are appointed animals that do not threaten the life of man but ravage the produce of his labor varieties of elk and deer species, and a smaller creature much akin to our rabbit, though infinitely more destructive to crops, and much more cunning in its mode of depredation. It is the first object of these appointed infants to tame the more intelligent of such animals into respect for enclosures signalized by conspicuous landmarks, as dogs are taught to respect a larder or even to guard the master's property. It is only where such creatures are found untamable to this extent that they are destroyed. Life is never taken away for food or for sport, and never spared where untamably inimical to the Anna. Concomitantly with these bodily services and tasks, the mental education of the children goes on till boyhood ceases. It is the general custom, then, to pass through a course of instruction at the College of Sages, in which, besides more general studies, the pupil receives special lessons in such vocation or direction of intellect as he himself selects. Some, however, prefer to pass this period of probation in travel, or to emigrate, or to settle down at once into rural or commercial pursuits. No force is put upon individual inclination. End of chapter 9